Okay, here, I'm just going to try. Okay, so I'm starting up the Audacity recording just to do a test real quick. Uh, would you just mind saying a few things? Hello, how's it going? Um, I'm, all, I'm up here in Canada. Whoa. <laughs> you're, oh, yeah, you, you've adopted the accent oh, of that. Oh, you're it? up at UVic, eh? <laughs> Have you actually encountered people who sound like that up there? Yeah. 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 Oh, sure. Oh sure, Every, I mean everybody just talks talks normal up here. Yeah, no. Now you know how the uh, how all the newscasters speak. You've been uh, you've been introduced to the newscaster dialect. <laughs> that is not at all newscaster dialect. <laughs> that's what they that's what they told me growing up was that <laughs> this is how newscasters talk. Did did they did they had anyone who said that ever heard the news? <laughs> <laughs> no, they all. They all just read the newspaper and they assumed oh, okay. that it was in there. They read it out loud to yeah. themselves. And <laughs> exactly. They were yeah, they were like, Tom, oh, yeah, this is Tom what all Broca. the news sounds like. Yep. I sound like Tom Brokaw. <laughs> Tom Brokaw. Oh, my oh, God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Peter Jennings. <laughs> yeah, this is all going in for sure. Good. <laughs> to Reverb. I'm Alex Helberg. And I'm Calvin Pollock. And on today's show, we are going to have an interview with Dr. Barbara Johnstone, a professor of English and linguistics at Carnegie Mellon University, and one of the foremost scholars on the American English dialect known as Pittsburghese. Our conversation is going to touch on the history, some of the features of Pittsburghese, how it's helped to forge various kinds of local identities in the city and beyond. And more broadly, we have a really interesting discussion about language ideology, about how the ways that we talk about language and think about language in influences our use of it. And uh, Calvin is coming in here remotely. He's actually broadcasting from Victoria up in British Columbia. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I was excited to be able to Skype in here. Uh, I'm up here for the Digital Humanities Summer Institute. Yeah, that's Um, right. How's that going so far? Well, I mean, the Institute is great. I've I've taken two classes on text analysis, you know, computational text analysis, which is really fascinating stuff and I love it but you know I gotta say though that like overall I, I, I'm not really liking you know how people speak up here I, I'm having trouble and it's really uh-huh. kind of you know harming my experience of of the of the training I mean people are you know they say a eh, all a eh, you know oh are you up at oh you up at UVic UVic eh uh, you know stuff and yeah and I don't know why they keep at, you know, adding a question to the end of every, you know, with like the A, I don't know how to respond to that. First of all, how do you respond to A? Do you say he, do you turn it back around? Do you, do you go? Yes. 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 I am at you, Vic. Yeah. I mean, this is just, this is just driving me crazy how they talk up here and I don't, and I feel like, uh, I'm having trouble fitting in. 
Well, well, Kevin, uh, it sounds like it sounds like you're coming into it with a little bit of a maybe a little bit of a prejudicial language ideology. I mean, what I, I don't know. What do you what do you think is uh, engendering? I just think attitudes? that people should talk how I talk, <laughs> which is which is how. How would you characterize that? Um, normal. The right way so, to, to talk. To, okay, so what, what's the what's the normal way to say correct way? I mean, what, sorry, let me run that. Let me yeah. DJ, the, run that the, back. Stan, the standard way to talk. Okay, I, okay. I think that people should adhere to certain standards. I don't know if that's uh, absurd in this day and age, but you know, I think we need about, to move back to, to back to traditions and standards and yeah. Know. Okay. Yeah, this world is going to hell in a in a handbasket. Is starting with everyone up here who is saying a uh and and various other things that just sound sound like garbage oh geez well anyway <laughs> we're gonna have a we're gonna have a really interesting interview here with barbara uh that uh speaks to some of these questions about uh, english language and identity uh and so uh yeah we're gonna go ahead and dive right into it i think i'm gonna do an uh, do my own seminar on how to speak right Okay, well, we'll we'll plug that uh, when Calvin organizes his uh, speaking correctly seminar uh, coming okay. in the next few months. All right, you guys uh, enjoy the interview, eh? <laughs> All right, thanks, Calvin. We're very excited today to be sitting down with Dr. Barbara Johnstone, Professor of English and Linguistics at Carnegie Mellon University. Her work lies at the intersection of rhetoric, linguistics, and critical theory, all of which she's drawn upon in her studies of how language mediates social relationships and communities, from persuasive styles in the Middle East to narrative in the American heartland, uh, all the way to her current work on the dimensions of local speech in Pittsburgh, also known as Pittsburghese. Barbara, welcome to Reverb. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Nice to be here. Yeah, so we wanted to start off just kind of giving people a sense of how you situate yourself academically and intellectually. So if you could just very briefly explain like the lens that you use to understand language and sort of local speech, how do you situate yourself intellectually? Well, my training is in linguistics, and I'm primarily a linguist, so I tend to be asking questions about language and then bringing in social facts or observations about human social practices to answer those questions. And the way I do that is primarily by using discourse analysis. That is very close systematic reading of various kinds of text, including transcripts, which I think of as text too, including also multimodal texts. So I'd say that I'm a discourse analyst a linguist, and a rhetorician to the extent that I see language discourse being the way it is because it accomplishes something. Mm. And I'm always interested in what is being accomplished and under what circumstances. Yeah, and that's. And I'm glad that we that you went there because that was going to be another question that we asked. Since we are in a rhetoric department mm-hmm. here at CMU, and we've kind of you know we've talked over with various guests in the past about their different definitions of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. So for you, it seems like you know rhetoric is about language that is purposeful, something that is meant to you know achieve some sort of goal. Would that be fair mm-hmm. to say? Well, I'd say that I was interested in that aspect of language. I, I think all language is about achieving a goal, in addition to being about all sorts of other things like projecting identities and 
being a kind of automatic response to the to the one's interlocutors, and so there are all sorts of constraints on what people say and how they say those things. But one of them, and one that often gets kind of lost a bit in, say, linguistic anthropology or sociolinguistics, is that people are trying to accomplish something. Mm. It may not always be the way they're taken up, but it's always part of understanding why discourse is the way it is. Thank you. That's really helpful. So with that sort of frame in mind and that sort of, you know, direction uh, that your work has generally gone in, uh, I think we wanted to talk to you primarily today about Pittsburgh speech or, Mm -hmm. you know, what I referenced in the introduction as Pittsburghese, which you've done some really foundational work on sort of defining what that is or how it becomes or how it gets taken up in community. So could you talk a little bit, how, how did you come to Pittsburghese? What's, what generated your interest in that uh, initially? Well, I've, I think I developed an interest in language and place at the very beginning of my career when I moved to my first job in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And for the first time in a, in a very long time, a long number of years of education, I felt like I was in a place where I belonged and where I was probably going to stay for some time. And a place that I could identify with, and I got interested in how language was part of that. In this particular community, how ways of telling stories contributed to people's sense of place. And then I've just been interested in every other place I've lived. And since I'm a linguist, I look at it through the lens of language. So when I was in Texas, I got interested in how what people meant when they talked about Texas speech and how how people with different identities, you know, used aspects of what was thought of as Texas speech, but also aspects of other ways of speaking, like sounding Southern or sounding Hispanic or sounding African American, and then did a study of women who used language in public, kind of rhetors. I mean, these were, it's a category of people that's not usually studied in sociolinguistics, because normally we seem to think that people doing things unselfconsciously or kind of better, provide better de- data than people doing things for a reason. But I was interested in how they, how these women, and it was a case study project with about 12 women, how they c- kind of created a public voice mm-hmm. um, by using aspects of different ways of speaking. That was when I got interested in these kind of folk ideas about language, things like talk and Texan, that kind of thing. And, and then when I came here, I was... Oh, we already had a couple projects going, a, a book on discourse analysis, and a couple other things. So I didn't start a new project right away, but I got I got interested in Pittsburgh speech, both because it sounded familiar to me, because I grew up about 120 miles from here, and also because I came across these little artifacts, I think the first of which was a little folk dictionary of mm-hmm. how to speak like a Pittsburgher. Right. Um, Is that Sam McCool's? That Sam McCool book, yeah. 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 I found it in a used book sale out in the middle of campus and thought, well, this is interesting. And also, my first thought was, well, <laughs> a lot of this is <clears throat> just wrong. Um, right. <laughs> because there were some things in that book that just shouldn't have been in that right. book. That um, is such a powerful artifact, though. I mean, when you're yeah. growing up in Pittsburgh, like, everyone knows that book. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I had it on my coffee table as a kid. Yeah, I think most people that I interviewed, I asked them, have you ever seen a book about Pittsburghese? And most people said yes, especially when I reminded them what it looked like. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So then in a class on rhetoric and place, or rhetorics of place, the class did a kind of joint project using film, data from documentary film, which came from two sources. One was someone had told me about, someone who studied the anthropology of policing, Mm. had told me that 
a series of documentaries was made in the 1960s of Pittsburgh police just doing their jobs, just going around. And it, apparently this was, was this series of films that Hill Street Blues was based on. Oh, you're um, kidding me. Yeah. Huh, that's super interesting. So I thought those would be a great source. I mean, since we didn't have time to go out and collect data from real people, I thought, well, you know, the, the police in 1960s have got to be mostly local people, working class people, men, mm -hmm. of course, mostly at that time with... Uh, and if anybody had a local accent, they probably would. Mm -hmm. And then we used some, we supplemented those for different age groups with some films by Rick Seebeck, who is really good at getting people to speak in their kind of unselfconscious sort of voices. Right. Anyone who, who lives in Pittsburgh should know Rick, Se Rick Seebeck and his yeah. local food documentaries. And yeah, he's a prominent, yeah. prominent Pittsburgh guy. Yeah. And he's made documentaries about all sorts of things and is very interested in Pittsburgh speech. Mm -hmm. Has a bit of an accent himself. There are so many things to like in the city of Pittsburgh, it's hard to pick just 25. Tesaro's Burgers, Andy Warhol's Grave, Streetcars, the Tunesium, oh, Pittsburgh Seltzer, Shortcuts, and we are the city of retaining walls. I'm going to show you 25 things I like about Pittsburgh. There could be a million. So, so we did that project, which was really a very much just a variationist, a history, a history of language project. In that sense, we found out that the monothongal pronunciation of Dan, the Dantan pronunciation, which right. is technically called the monothongal pronunciation of that diphthong ow, pronouncing it ah instead. Mm -hmm. We found out to our surprise that that seemed to be a 20th century phenomenon, that it, we found no evidence of it from anyone born before 1900. Hmm. So that was interesting and probably had to do with urbanization and, and immigration and language contact. But, but then the other thing we did was we compared the representations of the, the Pittsburghese we found in these films with representations of Pittsburghese in print from various, at that time, newspapers, magazines. This was the early 2000s, so we weren't using online sources yet. Mm -hmm. And we made a big corpus of those and just kind of compared how people talked, how the Sam McCool Dictionary t talked about how they talked and, and what was represented in local newspapers. And we found out that the representations, by far the most prominent or the most common thing to be represented in you know newspaper, magazines, et cetera, was that particular vowel mm -hmm. um, over and over again when people were trying to write down Pittsburghese or give a, an example of Pittsburghese, they'd use either Dantan or At or Hass or something like that. Right. So we just kind of speculated that maybe these things were related. We had no way of telling. But maybe the fact that the that, that particular vowel had kind of remained fairly strong in, in working class men, which was all the data we had, mm -hmm. was maybe somehow connected to the fact that it was the people were being reminded over and over again that that was a Pittsburgh thing. And that, mm -hmm. So then it kind of went from there to a larger series of papers and based on all sorts of different data that looked at the connections between how people talk mm -hmm. in Pittsburgh and how people talk about how Pittsburghers talk. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is, I, I personally, for me, that I think is probably the most fascinating thing about your work is that mm -hmm. it takes into account this sort of extra meta level of mm -hmm. analysis about, you know, how we use language the way that we do. It is, of course, always influenced by how we talk about how we use language. Yeah. We, right. It's not mm -hmm. always just this 
sort of unselfconscious process, but we were also being, you know, acted upon by representations of. So mm-hmm. I mean, we can think about like the stereotypes of, you know, if, if of of Pittsburghese. Well, that's kind as, of what I, I think. Yeah. It might be useful to take a step back and just for listeners who have maybe never encountered it or never even heard of it, like what are some of these stereotypical features in addition to the monophthongized mm-hmm. awe? Um, um, that one. In addition to that one, which actually doesn't just occur in a few words, it's anytime you pronounce a word that has ow in it, if you do this, you probably are going to pronounce it as ah, unless you're being pretty self-conscious about your speech. There are also a couple of other features like that that are pronunciation features. One is pronouncing an L in a what we call vocalized way, so that a word like school would sound like school, or Mm, a word like dollar would sound like dollar. Um, So the L... The L becomes more like a W or some kind of something more vocalic, more vowel-like. And then there are a couple of vowel sounds that are kind of moved around in the mouth. So to pronounce coat or home, you might hear in Pittsburgh, coat or home. Oh, right, yeah. right. Uh, that's called fronting of that vowel. Right. Um, and then one that's a little harder to hear is when the word, the vowel in the word stuff or butter is sometimes pronounced a little further down. So stuff or butter. Mm-hmm. And so those are phonology. What about uh, mm-hmm. like syntax and vocabulary? Because I know that mm-hmm. people have like a whole host of different features. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some a lot of words that come from Scots-Irish English. That was the way the first settlers, the first English-speaking settlers in this area tended to talk. And they have just stuck around here. So mm-hmm. a word like nebby for nosy or slippy for slippery right. or red up for clean up or tidy up. Jagger bush. Jagger, yeah, jagger for something that's irritating. And and that's how you get the term jag off, mm-hmm. which is right. which is like you know another An irritating word. irritating, irritating person. person. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I was going to say the most infamous one uh, is of course yins. That's yep. the mm-hmm. or, that's or what or I was yuns. getting to. That was right. sort of in between words and grammar. I mean, right. Sort of. A, so yins is the se- is a second person plural form like y'all in the south or you guys in the north or you know. Ewans, some mm-hmm. places. Um, it's actually related to Ewans. It's a kind of shortened form of Ewans. And you still hear Ewans or some version of Ewans up and down the Appalachian Mountains. Mm. Right. But in Pittsburgh, people think of it as a single word. They don't think of it as a contraction of U and ones. Mm. And they spell it Y-I-N-Z now. That's the most common spelling these days, which really doesn't give you very many clues at all, if any, about <laughs> where it came from. No. If you spelled it, for example, Y-O-U apostrophe U-N-Z, that mm-hmm. would you know, give you some information about its <laughs> that history. A, that it is a contraction, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. of course, there's the deletion of to be. Mm-hmm. So needs needs ironed. Mm-hmm. You know, the my shirt, shirt needs ironed. The yeah. car needs washed. Yeah. Yeah. That's another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that one is uh, also still very common in the areas that the Scots-Irish came from, namely Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Mm -hmm. Northern England. People there use those forms all the time. I guess getting to that meta level of like how people talk about the ways that Mm -hmm. people talk, can you think of any like particularly interesting differences that you've noticed in your work between what people think of as Pittsburghese and what is actually like kind of based on the data like particular to this area well one thing that happens over and over again is that people will take what is actually a pattern that happens in all sorts of different cases and identify it with a particular word so 
downtown. So somebody might say downtown if they were imitating a Pittsburgher but didn't actually have that accent. They might get the downtown right, but then in the next sentence they'd say out and house and sauerkraut, and they'd say all these other words, not realizing that those also had that sound in it. Sure. Or they might say stillers, which mm-hmm. is represents this phenomenon of L vocalization, but they wouldn't actually use it anywhere else. They just think it's that word. Or the car needs washed. I mean, that's by far the most common citation form of that. And people think it's just somehow just in that context that it's mm-hmm. used. As, but uh-huh. it's used in all sorts of contexts, even in fairly formal speech by some people. So yeah, and it sounds like part of it also is that people tend to take things that have a much wider geographical spread. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for instance, what was it, Ewan's? Ewan's mm-hmm. is used kind of throughout the Appalachian mm-hmm. region, and people kind of particularize it to Pittsburgh. Yeah, and that's something I've always been interested in ever since I was doing this work in Fort Wayne, where somehow there's this tendency, I think, to take these larger things that happen in larger contexts and just say, this is ours, this is us. Mm -hmm. And in Fort Wayne, it was certain values, like, you know, they had a big flood there and everybody turned out to help their neighbors and fill sandbags and everything. And it wasn't like this is an all-American way to be. This is just, this is us. This is Fort Wayne, Mm -hmm. you know. And then here, it's more particularly these sounds and words. This is just, this is us. We just do, th- we do this. Um, so telling people that some version of, y- that yins is a version of some other word it surprises them and that it's used elsewhere. That's like, no, that's our word. <laughs> I, one anecdote, a guy in the early days of streaming radio emailed me and said that he had just been listening to the, a radio station in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and they had had a weather forecast that said it was going to be slippy, and he couldn't believe it. He said, <laughs> why, why are they saying that? That's a Pittsburgh word. Yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah I mean, that, he had to look up my email address and email me about this to find out. You know. Do you often get those questions? Do you get emails from people who are curious about Pittsburgh oh, yeah. You're kind of our, I mean, you are kind mm-hmm. of our resident expert in the city on, mm-hmm. on Pittsburgh East. Yeah, I get emails all the time, and I Part of what has made this project so interesting is that it's very easy to find out a professor's email address. Oh boy! Right. Um, yeah, we're all we're all listed every place. I mean, mm-hmm. try to find out somebody's email address who isn't a professor. It's much harder. Right. So, you know, people can find my address. I mean, I just got some rambling, crazy <laughs> email from some guy over the over the time I was gone. I'm gonna have to figure out how to answer that. But so great, I answer all of them. But the yeah. great thing about what you study is that it's, I mean, that's all data for, for what mm-hmm. you're interested in, which is, you know, kind of language ideology, like people's ideas about mm-hmm. language, what language means, what language, um, you know, how it ought to be evaluated, what's correct, what's mm-hmm. incorrect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so even people who are kind of yelling at me, which doesn't happen very often, but once in a while, telling me I had got something wrong or wow. you know I don't know how to pronounce Appalachia because I, <laughs> and you know you look it up and say well there are actually two pronunciations that are, um, <laughs> yeah, it's um, not, but it's you, a, you be nice about it and uh, so but it is all data it's all uh, yeah. um, it's all material for further work and I'm still finding out some interesting little tidbits that I want to incorporate in things even though the project is more or less at an end. I mean, I've done all the major, I've written a book about it, which sort of should give me some closure, but yeah. it still continues to evolve. So it continues to be interesting. Yeah. Can, can you explain for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the field, what, what is a language ideology? Well, it's the kind of ideas that people have about language that underlie how they talk about things, right. um, how they understand what's going on and how they talk about what's going on. So Jenny Andrus, 
and her dissertation was about language ideology in the law mm-hmm. um, right. and how Anglo-American law sort of embeds some ideas about language that don't even really correspond to how we think about language, how n- ordinary people think about language today, right. mm-hmm. such as the idea that something someone says on their deathbed is somehow true. It's <laughs> truer than, than truer they than say in other circumstances. Right. It's more right. likely to be true. It's true because they because it's not rhetorical. Right. Like the right. idea that language right. could be completely not rhetorical, that you just say something because it just wells out of you. Mm-hmm. And the situation she's interested in is... Uh, what they call the excited utterance, which is a legal term that refers to an utterance that someone makes at the scene of a crime under the duress of what just happened. They blurt something out, and that can be used in court whether they agree to it or not. Wow. Because it's not rhetorical. It doesn't belong to them. Oh, my gosh. And this this happens in cases of domestic violence cases. Yeah. Um, So there's an example where understanding the being able to look for the language ideology it helps understand the sort of practical ramifications of yeah so I, I have a rather big question mm-hmm. which is why why do you think Pittsburghese is so central to Pittsburgh identity or has been um, do you have like a kind of historical mm-hmm. narrative that you tell about that yeah um, I think it has to do with a whole bunch of things coming together in exactly the kind of perfect storm although I don't wouldn't think of I don't think storm is really the right metaphor but so I think what happened is that people for a long time were completely unaware that they talked differently from people anywhere else. I think mm-hmm. this is probably true of regional accents in general. People were, especially working class people, were just not very mobile. People in Pittsburgh have never been very mobile because of the geographic, the mountains which separate us, create a barrier between Pittsburgh and the east, and also just just kind of local habits. I mean, even the elite, the Pittsburgh elites, would send their sons off to Yale and they always sent them to Yale. There are a huge amount of huge connections with Yale here. And then they'd come back and marry a Pittsburgh girl. So there was always this kind of, I guess anthropologists call it endogamy, um, mm. when you marry somebody from the same place. Right. And then, of course, working class people didn't have any money to travel. They didn't take vacations, you know. But that began to change at the time of the Second World War, especially when people, mainly men but some women, also traveled in the military. And they people often have stories about either going to the military or going to college and suddenly having people say, wait, you talk funny. What do you, what do you mean by that? <laughs> right, you know, right. I can't understand you. What's a gum band? You know? <laughs> so I think that started the process of people becoming aware that there was a Pittsburgh accent. And people tell me, I mean, older people that I interviewed tell me that they probably did have an accent when they were growing up, but they didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how would I know? Everybody talked that way. Right, um, yeah. So, but then I think in the 1950s, if you look at newspaper articles about Pittsburgh speech, there's an occasional one before the 1950s, maybe one or two altogether, mostly about you know Pittsburgh sayings and things like that. But in the 1950s, you start having a fairly regular, once every few years, there'll be an article in the Sunday, whatever it's called, the special Sunday section. Mm-hmm. And there were two newspapers, so the you know one newspaper did it, the other newspaper had to do it too. Right, right. And and then up through the 60s, there were even more. And then in the late 60s, this dialectologist came to town, uh, worked, taught at Pitt, named Robert Parslow. And he started speaking publicly. His, his background was he had worked for the linguistic atlas of the, of the upper Midwest. So he was a dialectologist who knew about collecting data and so on. And he informally assembled lists of Pittsburgh words and phrases and 
started explaining to people where they came from, and he was very willing to be interviewed by newspaper reporters because this was his specialty anyway. Mm-hmm. He never published anything about the, on the topic, but he did make people aware in a very important way of that this was a real thing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just a joke. It wasn't just a few random, you know, ignorant things that people did that mm-hmm. there was a reason. So he gave Pittsburgh's speech a history, and that was an important that was an important moment. And then in the 1980s, as everybody knows, the steel industry really came to an end in P- the steel production, not mm-hmm. the industry, but the production of steel came to an end in Pittsburgh. This had been happening for several decades, even before the Second World War. But in the 1980s, it just became really obvious that everything was, steel was gone. Mm-hmm. They tore down the steel plants and sold them for scrap and and then a whole generation of Pittsburghers had to leave because there was no work for them here anymore and they had no identity anymore. They were not steel workers. They weren't so, you know, who are we? Well, we root for the Steelers. The Steelers <laughs> had a very good decade in the 1970s. Right, right. Um, too. Yeah, and so you could root for the sports teams. That would meant that was part of what being a Pittsburgher meant. Mm-hmm. But they also seized on language as being part of what being a Pittsburgher meant because it was available, because they knew about it. It was already sort of circulating. These ideas were circulating, and they get picked up. And then these people, who are the baby boom generation, basically, mm-hmm. they go elsewhere. They, they let Many of them go to the South, because that's where the jobs were, the Sun Belt, as they called it then. And they also, in the later 80s, or mid to later 80s, became early adopters of home computing. Mm-hmm. which was just coming onto the scene then. Mm-hmm. They're in their 30s and maybe 40s, and they pick it up. They mm-hmm. learn. And I'll tell you, as someone who learned to use a computer at that time, it was not easy. No, I can't even <laughs> Not imagine. like now. Yeah. But, no. um, but anyways, they did, and they got onto these discussion forums and talked about talked to other Pittsburghers about what it meant to be a Pittsburgher. So they wouldn't have done... I mean, if it had been 10 years earlier, this wouldn't have happened. Right. Mm-hmm. So it all comes together just in a just sort of perfectly, and creates this this discourse about what Pittsburgh speech means and how it's tied to local identity. Yeah. And then the, you know, stuff keeps happening. There's There keep being representations, books, and then the... the and I mean, at some point, you enter the story. Yeah, and right. at some point, I enter the story. And yeah, I start talking to people, and, you know, I sort of further legitimize Pittsburghese, mm-hmm. talk to everyone who asked me to talk to them, and answer every email and go on podcasts and go talk on about podcasts <laughs> and talk about yeah. these things yeah <laughs> yeah make podcasts we made a bunch right. of podcasts this is the pittsburgh speech and society project in this series we discuss words and phrases that come to mind when people think about pittsburgh speech today's word is stillers it's not just stillers that some speakers in southwestern pennsylvania and throughout the south pronounce differently Stillers has come to represent a class of words for which these speakers relax the E sound by pronouncing it as I. Go Stillers, we fixed the home cooked mill. I'm pillin' an orange. You're beating around the bush. Stillers for Steelers, mill for meal, pilling for peeling, so why not bidding instead of beating? Well, it turns out that many speakers relax the E sound before L's. In fact, speakers often pronounce vowels one way before some sounds and another way before other sounds. Yeah, so that's that's been part of it too. I mean, I get contacted whenever, well, for example, the perennial argument about whether jagoff is a bad word. Oh, right, you know. right. Yeah, like I, I have an anecdote about that. I, I went to one of the Pirates playoff games and I had 
at that time the the Pirates were playing the Giants, the San Francisco Giants, and they had this right fielder named Hunter Pence. Yeah. And like there was this trend where every city that the Giants went to, the fans of the other team would hold signs that were like insulting Hunter Pence, like oh. Hunter Pence, like you know, doesn't wear you know attractive shirts or you know just like right. kind of ragging on hunter pence sure. and i brought a sign that said hunter pence is a jag off and they, they <laughs> wouldn't let me in because they, yeah they were like that's wow. no no we don't let people in with with signs with curse words on them oh my gosh oh, really yeah and this was here this was here yeah yeah, they didn't have the proper sociolinguistic training. No. Right, if they had, they did not know that that was. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, it is interpreted as a swear word in some places, and you know, it sounds like a bit like one. And I think it's, mm-hmm. it's that people have started to misanalyze it or to reanalyze it, analyze it as being related to that other term. And you know, I think often when I'm contacted about this, people want me to say, "No, it's not a swear word. It's perfectly." You know, it's got a history. It's uh, right. Mm-hmm. People have been using it for a long time. Maybe it's not something you'd want your kid to say to their to their friend's father or something. But it's not a. It's not like accusing somebody of masturbating. Um, right. It's right. Yeah. And I mean, I can say that I can make that argument, but I also have to acknowledge that there are yeah. a lot of people who don't know that, and for you know, for whom it is a bad word. Right. So. Yeah. And that's well, because that that goes back to kind of your point about people talking about the talk. Mm-hmm. Eventually, if it. If it bears a resemblance, even if it's not etymologically related, if it mm-hmm. bears a resemblance to yeah to some other kind of word form, people are going to just interpret it as as being a bad word in kind right. of a way, right? Yeah, but what people believe is that words have one correct definition. That's right, right, and right. that's a language ideology. Yeah, yes. that's definitely a language ideology. So I just have to say, okay, you want me to give you the one correct definition, but I can't. There isn't just one correct definition. Right, mm-hmm. things change. Definitions definitions change. This just actually came up last weekend. I wasn't here, so I couldn't talk to this guy. Mm-hmm. But some reporter wanted me to comment on whether Jagoff was a bad word or not. I can't. I just. I don't remember the context. It was probably uh-huh. in an article in the Tribune Review, and just in the last few days. We'll try to track that down yeah. and put it in the show notes. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So take us up to today. Who are the new Yenzers? So one of the things that I've been trying to argue the whole time or almost the whole time I've been studying Pittsburghese, is that it has not always meant the same thing. And you can actually see this, and Calvin and I did a paper about it, so this is, in a way, an insincere question. Well, <laughs> I want to hear you tell in, it. In terms. It's more interesting. Well, and maybe maybe we can kind of go through the chronology of yeah. those, the sort of characters mm-hmm. of people who, who are thought to speak Pittsburghese, mm-hmm. right? Right, so... If you look at the earliest representation, if you look at that Sam McCool dictionary, and if you look at the you know other data from representations of Pittsburghese from the 40s, 50s, 60s, even 70s, it's Pittsburghers who speak Pittsburghese, and it might be working-class Pittsburghers right. mostly, but there are representations that suggest that anyone in Pittsburgh speaks Pittsburghese. Sometimes the, the representations are a little skewed towards working-class practices, so as an example of the monothongal owl, you might have dad fell asleep on the couch after work which might be sort of reminiscent of somebody who was working on his feet all day right but to the extent that they were working class it was a it was the old working class it was the proud working class it was the unionized working class the Mm -hmm. people who were making good money and could afford middle class lives and to buy washing machines and second cars and and, you know have carports and all that good stuff in the (laughs) 50s and 60s um so that was not necessarily a it was not necessarily a stigmatized identity. Mm-hmm. It was an identity that people were quite proud of. But over time, Pittsburghese has come to sort of mean 
different things or be associated with different kinds of people. Right. And I think probably the, a subsequent one was a kind of caricature of the new working class, the, right. the contemporary post-industrial working class, which is an ironic way to put it because many of them are not working. Right, right. Um, yeah. People who have, you know, multiple jobs at Kmart and whatever mm-hmm. and are just struggling to make ends meet, people who are not very well educated, people who do things like run nail salons and, and are represented as kind of coarse a little bit. Culturally conservative. People with poor taste, right. culturally maybe conservative, but also interested in drinking and sex to some right. extent. Sure. Yeah. People who are kind of out of it. But then at the same time, and this, this, these are both kind of recurrent, they kind of weave in and out of each other, there's still this kind of, there was one I called a kind of timeless Pittsburgh character. Uh, mm-hmm. Someone like the Pittsburgh dad character on, right. on YouTube. Hey, come on, you kids, let's go. We're heading to Graham's house. No, we ain't stopping at McDonald's on the way. We're making one stop, and that's the Kmart's. Says I can get WD-40. Oh, why, and that you're hungry? Hey, Linda's making stuffed peppers. Well, you'll eat it or starve, plain and simple. What do you mean it stinks over there? Couldn't stink any worse than that room of yours. Oh, I know Pat's eye looks creepy. Just don't look at it. We'll get back when we get back. No, Grandma don't got a computer yet. She's still got a rotary phone. What the hell would she do with a computer? Facebook. Oh, there's plenty to do at Graham's house. Your cousins would be there, at dartboards in the cellar, or you guys can hook up the old Atari and play that. Last time I seen you, you were putting pillows down on bottom steps and jumping into them. When can you ever do that over here? Well, I'd tear your heads off. Just don't touch Pat's pool table. You think I yell. Hey, what about that weirdo kid Paul lives next door? Play with him. Well, then stay out the window all day for all I care. Get ready, we'll leave. No, dead dog sitting his trip out. Or the the characters that Jim Crenn used to play on WDVE. This weekend, it's the 24-hour sale at Pansonet. Hey, you sleepyheads, get up. No sleeping in the store. (laughs) Dad, where are you? I'm screwy. It's 2.15 in the morning. There ain't nobody here but us. That's the point, Mr. Nebby. That's right, Mr. Nebby. Now, all four Pansonet locations in the greater Pittsburgh area are open 24 hours a day. Need polyester at 10.15 at night? Indestructible double knits at noon? Plaid sweaters at 2.15 in the morning? There's just one place to go. I get my disability check and pow! It's down to Pansonet. Last time I was up this late was for Chili Billy. Him in a terminal stair. He was showing tack of the mushroom people. Yeah, I remember that when he gave me the willies. No, you don't. You was always falling asleep after the first movie. Mushroom people was the second. Jag. Was shut up boatians and find something to wear and don't be spending all my money. People who live in the contemporary world and are not necessarily working class, they're just Pittsburghers. They're kind of middle class Pittsburghers, live in the suburbs, have a reasonably nice house, and they speak with Pittsburgh accents, and they're just kind of stuck in the past in a certain way. Yeah, so maybe I misspoke. This type might be more culturally conservative or thought of as Yeah, this type is more culturally conservative. Yeah, probably goes to church, um, you know, like always mm -hmm. kind of, family gatherings like Mm -hmm. mom's gonna get food on the table stuff like that yeah and these are people who are often kind of frustrated because they don't quite understand what's what's going on now but they have they kind of are stuck in the past in a bit in a in a certain way but they exist in the present and they're often depicted very rather fondly 
Hmm. So the the new working class is usually looked down on as that's usually a very those representations are often derogatory. Mm-hmm. But the sort of timeless Pittsburgher represent is represented fondly often. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth one, I think, which is the newest one, is the new Yenzer, which is what Kelvin originally asked about. And this is someone who is not from Pittsburgh, probably, mm-hmm. is a newcomer, is one of the outsiders who is now either staying in Pittsburgh after college or moving to Pittsburgh. And they use, I mean, they don't actually have local accents. They never did. They may not even know anybody who has a local accent. If they do, it may be somebody from work. And sometimes they're not even aware of what it sounds like to have a local accent. They'll just identify anything non-standard as Pittsburghese. Right. Mm-hmm. They'll say, you know, Pittsburghese is when you say ain't or something, which is... Yeah. Um, or humid. Instead or of humid, humid instead right. of humid, yeah. yeah. And they use... Pittsburghese as a way to claim a kind of local identity, but more as a kind of object for consumption. Um, mm. So they might buy a Pittsburghese t-shirt, or they might buy a little onesie for an infant that says Lil Yinzer on it right. or something. Um, <laughs> or they might buy a Christmas card that's kind of Yinzer themed. Or mm-hmm. So that's a, a yet another sort of character that is associated with Pittsburghese. Mm-hmm. So this is, I mean, these are all still circulating, but to a greater or lesser extent. Yeah. And I think the old the old working class Pittsburgher is probably less and less represented because people just don't remember that era anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's been really interesting to me l- reading over uh, some of uh, your past work as well as uh, the, the paper that, that you and Calvin wrote. The ways that this sort of dialect has intersected with class mm-hmm. uh, historically, and I think that we wanted to ask a question too. You know, since Pittsburgh is both a socioeconomically and a racially diverse city as well, mm-hmm. about the ways that you know th- uh, other other kinds of dialects like uh, African American vernacular mm-hmm. English intersects with Pittsburgh, or does it get erased kind of mm-hmm. through because that's because again a lot of the things it seems like. A lot of the other sort of characters of who is speaking Pittsburghese tend to mm-hmm. be white. Would that be a mischaracterization? Or? Uh, not at all. No, okay. they definitely tend to be white. I've never seen a representation of, well, not, I take that back. I have seen representations of African Americans using aspects of Pittsburghese, and in mm-hmm. fact they do, but they don't, they don't identify with it at all. They, uh, we have actually done, done research on this in the Hill District in the, in the course of sociolinguistic interviews there and found out that, in fact, it appears that Pittsburgh African-American English and African-American English is not a monolithic thing. It's, right. it's right. very regionally distinct. You can, you can tell, I mean, my field worker for that part of the study was an African-American woman from Akron, Ohio, and she said the accent here is very different. Um, mm-hmm. And in part, that has to do with the fact that African Americans have lived in Pittsburgh for longer than in many north northeastern cities. Right, right. This is not just the Great Migration after the Second World War, the way African Americans in Detroit or Akron, mm-hmm. but African Americans have been here since the middle of the nineteenth century. Right. So there's been a longer time of mutual influence, and as a result, African American Pittsburgh now has a couple of features, phonological features, not things that people are aware of, that sound like what white people do. Interesting. They also often, I mean, they and they will sometimes claim to do this, they often sometimes use, a, you know, needs washed or read up or, you know, one of those things, but they do not use yins. They say, y'all. Ah, and that's something you hear over and over again. We don't say yins. Right. We're not yinsers. Yeah, so that that group of people gets pretty much erased, although if you scratch the surface, you find that there actually is some mutual influence. 
I see. I mean, not maybe not mutual influence, but in fact, some of the things that are in the original Sam McCool dictionary are actually more African-American. But as I found out from Sam McCool, who I finally tracked down, he was kind of more or less forced to put those things in. Really? He was not a linguist. He was someone who had been interested in the history of English and was from eastern Pennsylvania and noticed the differences and mm. was married to a Pittsburgher and had taken a class on regional dialects at, in college, found himself in Pittsburgh and got just really interested in this stuff and oh. some, and, and, and ended up writing a book about it because he was uh, working in the print shop. He was, I think he ran the print shop for the Salvation Army or the Goodwill, I can't remember. I think maybe it was mm -hmm. Good, Goodwill, yeah. Mm -hmm. And they printed internal documents, flyers, things like that, what a print shop would have done in the age before, you know, scanning and things. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to show the people that there was more they could do. They could do, they could use this print shop to do more than just internal stuff. They could, they could make some money. They could, you know. So he made this little book. But, you know, they were going to pay to have it published. And they said, various people said, well, you've got to include this, you've got to include that, you've got to include this other thing. And he, he knew they weren't. Pittsburghese things, but he just had to include them. Um, interesting. That's yeah. so fascinating. Yeah, I love like, it, these little tiny details. It's so interesting. That had yeah. such a big influence yeah. on how we oh, understand yeah. this you know, mm -hmm. so-called dialect. Well, and that's, again, like one of the things that I think is so important about the kind of work that you're doing is that you're tracking the ways that these representations of the way that a local dialect is spoken, I mean, it has... I, you know, not to cop too much off of our name, but it reverberates across the ages, you know, mm -hmm. like right. that has consequences yeah. for how we think about and talk about Pittsburghese today, mm -hmm. too. Right. And I think there's another connection with rhetoric on a larger scale, and that is that language ideology is incredibly important for how we talk about yeah. rhetoric, how Can we understand rhetoric. And I think it's just an untapped kind of resource to think yeah. about language ideology. Yeah, it's it's such a powerful idea, and it's something that I don't. I mean, it, it's important to emphasize for our listeners who aren't familiar with the field. I mean, we we all have language ideologies. Mm -hmm. This is some, but it doesn't. You know, as we were saying with with Pittsburghese before, it doesn't become apparent sometimes mm -hmm. until you encounter difference or mm -hmm. you know something right. like you know just speaking from my own perspective i had a language ideology about midwest speech mm -hmm. which was that which is something that was repeated to me as a as a kid when i was growing up in minnesota and wisconsin which is that this is the neutral tone this mm -hmm. is the way that mm -hmm. newscasters speak and the reason that they do it is because you don't have an accent yeah. <laughs> which i mean is now you yeah when i when i got to pittsburgh i realized mm -hmm. oh that's patently false like people right. can people would say to me within five minutes, oh, you must be from the Midwest. And I was like, how do you know? I thought I didn't have an accent. Yeah. Right. But, you know, that that was my mm -hmm. ideology about that, mm -hmm. about that way of speaking that didn't really even, you know, I just took it as tacit, like, oh, that's, that's the truth. But all of a sudden it was exposed to be yeah. this very partial thing when I came into contact with other, mm -hmm. with other people who spoke differently and who had other ideas yeah. about language. Right. If you come into contact with people who are even more different, like people from cultures in the South Pacific or, you know, the people that have been studied by anthropologists and for the most part not by rhetoricians, you find that there are very different language ideologies underlying people's speech in public. Mm -hmm. So, for example, one of our kind of fundamental ideas about speech in public is that it is the result of intention. Mm -hmm. um, and that is not necessarily something you have to think about. I mean, so maybe speech in public can be, maybe you could think of where the meaning is, not just in what the speaker intended, but in what 
the hearer took from it. Right, right. Or maybe you could say that the speaker's intention doesn't really have anything to do with what happens. It could be that, you know, some other character is speaking through you, for example. Um, mm. This is the kind of, the kind of claim that uh, Foucault was trying to make, for example, about mm. the way larger discourses can just speak through you, so that the idea that you could intentionally set out to persuade somebody is just is just a mystification of what's really happening. Right. Yeah, and this stuff has profound political ramifications. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think part of what unsettles people so much about Trump is that he doesn't speak how you're supposed to speak mm-hmm. right, as, as yeah. a politician and particularly as the president, as the mm-hmm. like representative of the nation, that he seems to just be rambling mm-hmm. or just kind of, I mean, in particular, like our very deeply embedded standards of linguistic correctness. Mm-hmm. He violates those all the time. Yeah. yeah. Well, and even, I, I even see this sometimes with, well, and I'm not calling anybody out, but I see it sometimes with rhetoric scholars themselves, even people, you know, who I follow on social media who, you know, are still kind of caught in this sort of like, this doesn't sound very presidential, you know, right. um, that kind of thing. And who want to get into, you know, analyzing the sort of uh, linguistic aspects of his speech, which I do think is interesting. But mm-hmm. but it's still just kind of fascinating that, that yeah, that, <laughs> that that's the default that we go back to is mm-hmm. that it exposes this ideology that we have about the way that a president is supposed to sound. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it also appeals to the ideology that many people have that speaking in an unplanned way is kind of real and authentic, that he just says what's on his mind. He doesn't try to fancy it up. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's probably one of the language ideologies that has maybe made him popular with Mm -hmm. with a large swath of Americans is that it... I mean, we've I've seen the argument made before that it's well, he does sound more authentic, or he does at least he's not covering up, I guess, mm-hmm. some of the yeah. in, in or he's not using quite as many euphemisms maybe as as other well, presidents. Or he's have not to. being it's not rhetoric, right? Oh yeah, as if it was not rhetoric. Yeah. <laughs> sure, right, right, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, was there was there any other major points that we wanted to um, touch on? Do you want to tell us about your dogs? <laughs> Uh, I don't know what this is. Don't you train them? Oh, yeah. No, I'm very interested in that aspect of animal-human communication. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've always been interested in animal communication. I can remember having a long conversation with my father, who was a philosopher and who really encouraged me to think about language when I was in high school, in junior high even, about animal communication. Wow. Um, What have you noticed about the ways that you're able to communicate with your dogs? you You try to take advantage of the ways they communicate. It's not like you're making up a new language or anything. And, and I have to say here that there's a that people who do different kinds of things with dogs find that it works differently. So, but I do really close uh, detail work with where the, where the dog and I can see each other mm-hmm. and look at each other. And so if, you, if you're having a sheep dog that's way out there in the field, you have to develop different things, right. like whistles and so on. But if you're aware of the kind of basic way in which gaze works and social and distance works like mm-hmm. if you want a dog to back up you can step towards it probably would work with a person too actually right. mm-hmm. it does work with, with people mm-hmm. um, and I go to these classes and people are just talking to their dogs the whole time and it's just <laughs> not I mean it doesn't mean anything to the dog <laughs> a very small you, have, you can have a fairly large vocabulary but it has to be tailored to the dog what the dog is doing so that's so interesting it's really interesting and it's also yeah. very it's it's collaborative you know right. i learned this when i got my very first dog and i read the book about how to train your dog and it said if your dog jumps up on the sofa 
push it down and say no this is yeah. not how they would do it now but that's what they said you should do then right and I did that and my dog jumped back up on the sofa <laughs> and I pushed her down and said no and she jumped back up on the sofa and I, fu- mm-hmm. I realized that this was a game right she, she was playing a game and, oh wow um I couldn't I mean I had to I had to get some different rules you know if I right. want her to do you think that a dog can be rhetorical I think they can appear to be rhetorical. I think, I mean, they can tell you they want to go out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But whether they're sort of planning that or not, I don't know. I mean, they can certainly have effects. What mm-hmm. they do can have effects. If your dog goes to the door and barks, you know, that's... But and it's not like they have any kind of understanding that if I go to the door and bark, she'll let me out. It's right. They don't have that meta level. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, that's a big question. Oh, I mean, right. there are rhetoricians who are now f- talking about animals, and uh, you know, there's a whole line of argument that animals should be taken much more seriously and treated much more like humans. I have mm-hmm. problems with that. I think it's the way you dignify an animal is by treating it like the animal that it is, not mm-hmm. by treating it like a human. Right, yeah. It's, it's tempting to want to anthropomorphize animals mm-hmm. and say that they use the same kind of symbolic communication as humans do. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, as somebody who does live with a cat, it is very, very tempting to do that sometimes because mm-hmm. it seems like... You know, the, I mean, cats in particular, for example, meowing is purely something that they do, or at least this is, I don't, I haven't read the actual, the research on this, but um, apparently that's something that they only do for humans. They don't hmm. do that to one another in the wild. And so it's a form of symbolic communication that they seem to have developed because they know that it, I mean, because it's purposeful, right? Like mm-hmm. they can, they can get something from me if mm-hmm. they, if they mimic the sounds of, you know, in some cases, like a crying child or, you know, something like that. They've hmm. realized how to sort of tap into some kind of meaning. I mean, they, they've thought about they've thought about me and what appeals <laughs> to me. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Or to, maybe yeah. they're just reacting to what happened the last time. That's that. That um, could be it, too. But. Yeah. I don't know. I Yeah. It's it's complicated. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, we don't have to go too far down that road. I do yeah, have a. I'm, I'm I, not an expert on this. Oh at no, all. of course. I, just, yeah. I do. I do. However, want to. I just maybe we can close on. I have a funny anecdote that kind of mm-hmm. ties together <laughs> human animal communication as well as mobility and geographic mm-hmm. uh, sometimes differences between languages. Mm-hmm. Something that I've been just colloquially, you know, on my own charting out recently, and part of this is from owning a cat is trying to pick up on the different ways that people call to cats mm-hmm. or to any other kind of animal, I guess. But for cats in particular, there seems to be a stark difference. Almost everybody that I've met who is east of Ohio or th- roughly thereabouts, I haven't, I don't have a map d- mm-hmm. demarcating this at this point, but they, everybody out this direction seems to call cats by just going. That's what I do. Or using kind yeah. of like a, I don't know how well the mic's going to pick that up, but yeah, <laughs> it's kind of, kind of a, yeah, just a, yeah. Kind of a whispery. A whispery, mm-hmm. you know, with like a little bit of a pee sound mm-hmm. in there. Whereas the way that I was always taught to, uh, you know, to beckon a cat was to go. <laughs> and just, just make, yeah, kind of clicking noises with my tongue. And that does seem to be the way people do it in the Midwest or further out West huh. uh, versus I, I, again, totally a folk folk theory that I'm developing <laughs> yeah. right now. It'll be all over uh, journals uh, by next year. What I'm would sure. you, what <laughs> would you use to, to beckon a cat, Barbara? You don't like cats. So you um, I had a cat for 20 years oh, okay. and she never did anything that I wanted her to do no matter what. Um, yeah, I really don't know. I don't know that I used any of those noises. Maybe that was my problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that right. was your problem. Yeah. <laughs> You didn't have a repertoire of of, uh, rhetorical (laughs) strategies for communicating to cats. Yeah. 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 All right. 
Well, we want to say thank you so much for sitting down and talking with us, Barbara. Oh, you're um, certainly welcome. Yeah, absolutely. We it's it's always fantastic to get to speak with you about your work. You've you've been such an inspiration. I know to both Calvin and I uh, through the course of the program. So we really appreciate all your work. Thank Thanks you. for joining Good. us. All right, you're welcome. Right. Pleasure to be here. All right, take care, everybody. Bye. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock. Reverb's web designer is Anna Cook, and our publicity and social media team is Ryan Mitchell and Audrey Strong. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.